0: You are listening to a message from the Living Word Community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Dan, for that introduction. And of course, as we are preparing to hear the word up here, if you are part of our Sunday School ministry, you are invited to make your way downstairs. Again, just look for TT uh, Beth. She will let you know where you will be today, whether it's in the fellowship hall or outside or some other place. We trust TT Beth. She's our superintendent of Sunday School. She's a deaconess in our midst, and we love her and her faithful service to us, to the Lord, and to our children. Um, but it's a blessing to be here together today And as always, I'm very excited to be able to share the word of God with you. It was also excellent for those of you who were able to make it to be together yesterday. Uh, It was fun to be able to be back at Nakamixon to have that time of fellowship together. Uh, I just really enjoyed looking around from time to time and seeing you who were there really enjoying yourselves, enjoying fellowship, uh, enjoying being able to connect that way Uh, once again as sisters and brothers in Christ. Um, We are continuing to pray that the Lord will give us more opportunities to do that. And as was done at the beginning of the service, we do wanna remember to pray for areas of this country and and more so even areas of the rest of the world where COVID is still raging, um, where it's still taking many lives, where it is not yet a situation where they can have that freedom of fellowship that we are now beginning to enjoy. We are certainly grateful for what the Lord is doing here but we don't want to forget that many of our sisters and brothers are still experiencing significant challenges that are connected with COVID. But anyways, that being said, as Dan, as Dan introduced this time, uh, if you have your Bible with you, and of course, I don't know why you wouldn't have your Bible with you, because most of you have your Bible on your phone. And I know many of you feel completely lost without your phone. Uh, I'm sure there's some sort of analogy or joke in there, but it's escaping me. But anyways, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. The main passage that we are going to look at is Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. But the problem with Ruth in trying to preach a single message from it is it's such an incredibly self-contained story. So we're going to do a little bit of lead up to Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, and then kind of use that as the main text that we'll use for sort of the second part of the message today. But let me open us with a word of prayer and just invite the Lord to speak to us as we spend this time together looking to him through his word. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and once again so amazed at how good you have been to us, all that you have done for us. And the many, many, many opportunities that you give us, Lord God, opening our eyes to see you, opening our eyes to see your hand at work. And we just want to continue to live lives that are oriented to you, that turn to you regularly in worship. And not, Lord, only worship with song and with music, as wonderful as that worship is, but, Lord. Worship you with how we go about our jobs. Worship you with how we are members of our families. Worship you with how we pursue our academic studies. Worship you, Lord, in every aspect of our lives, because that's what you desire. And Lord, that's what you are worthy of. You are worthy of nothing less than each one of us striving to worship you every day in everything that we do. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help each one of us, myself included, to be able to do that. Father, we also want to thank you so much for your word. And particularly this morning, Lord God, we thank you for the incredible story that you have preserved for us in the book of Ruth. What a a delightful and amazing account of your loving faithfulness of your kindness putting yourself on display Lord showing just amazing aspects of your character and so we pray Lord in the fairly short time that we will spend together right now considering some of the the characters and some of the themes of the book of Ruth Lord, we pray that you would genuinely speak to each one of us. That each one of us would would sense what you are doing in our hearts and in our lives. That you would open our ears, Lord, not to hear my voice, but to hear your voice. To hear what you are saying. Because, God, that's what what we desire. Is to hear your voice voice. Lord, many of us are facing really challenging circumstances. And Father, we need to know and be reminded that you are with us. That you are with us in the midst of those circumstances. And that you still are a God who is able to save. You still are a God who is able to redeem. And we thank you for that. And so, Jesus, it is in your name and it is for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me. I want to begin by actually just reading The opening phrase of the book, I don't even think it's the entire first verse of the book, but just the opening phrase. It says, in the days when the judges were judging. So in the days when the judges were judging. That's how the unknown to us, author of the book of Ruth, begins this incredible account. He tells us the time in which this story took place. It was the time when the judges were judging Israel. Now, for those of you who have been participating in the corporate reading that we've been working through, we've done Joshua and Judges, and now we're finishing up Ruth, you are familiar with the time of the Judges. The Judges give us some of the most colorful and memorable characters in the Bible. Last week, Dan gave us an opportunity to consider the life and ministry of Gideon and the life and ministry of Samson. But you also have Deborah and Barak. You have Ehud, a man who was bound of his right hand. You have Jephthah, a very uh, difficult character for us to follow in some of the mistakes that he makes. But the book of Judges is filled with these incredibly colorful individuals that God is more than able to use to deliver his people. But as the book of Judges concludes, and Dan was mentioning this last week, we actually come to five of probably the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. For those of you who are reading Judges 17 to 21, you probably were fairly disturbed, and rightly so. If you read those five chapters and you are not troubled, you are not dismayed, you are not a little bit disheartened, you probably were not really paying attention. It was one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. And there was a refrain with a little bit of variation that was repeated quite a few times in those five chapters. And part of that refrain was, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Of course, what you are hoping for as a reader is the declaration everyone was doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. But that was not the evaluation of the period of the end of the judges. Unfortunately, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And Israelite society was starting to become unraveled. It was starting to dip into deep, deep paganism. And so the end of the book of Judges ends on a fairly, fairly discouraging note. And of course, as I was considering that, I thought there are so many parallels between Israelite society at the end of the time of the Judges and the society in which the Lord has called us to live. I think actually an incredibly accurate evaluation of American society in 2021 might be, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. I thought, wow, what an incredible declaration that was made probably some 3,000 plus years ago to evaluate a society that was coming unraveled, And here we are, actually living in a society that is very much living, unfortunately, the same way. As we look around, we hear in so many different ways our culture reinforcing the idea that everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is free to make whatever choices is right for them. Everyone is free to pursue their dreams, their goals, their visions, live life their own way on their own terms. And we see how much that is just crippling and devastating our society. And so as dark as the time of the judges was some 3,000 plus years ago, in many ways, our time is just as dark. And we are living in a a culture, we are living in a time frame where so many, in one way or another, are declaring, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And nobody, nobody has a right to tell me otherwise. So it's so important that we remember that in the midst of that incredibly discouraging and disheartening time, the events, Of the book of Ruth took place because if you've read the book of Ruth you would have a hard time recognizing that Israel was spiraling downward you would have a hard time recognizing that they were dipping their toes into the waters of paganism and that they were doing things that were so out of step with the Lord and his good purposes for his people if you read the book of Ruth you are delighted, you are encouraged, you are strengthened, you are hopeful because it is such an amazingly good account of three ordinary people. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. You know, another one of the things that's so amazing about the book of Ruth. These three, they were not kings and queens. They were not priests. They were not prophets. They were not heroes on the field of battle. They were not judges. They were not mighty, valiant warriors. They were three incredibly ordinary people, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And what you have is you. You have three people who were willing to risk everything and go against their culture. You have three ordinary people, not valiant warriors, not those in positions of governmental authority, three ordinary people who were willing to go against the sinful norms of their culture. And they show faithfulness and they show love and they show generosity they show all of the things that so reflected the God that they were trying to serve and so each one of us has that same opportunity in this age in this culture in this time in which the Lord has called us to live You don't have to be in a position of governmental authority. You don't have to be recognized on social media. You don't have to be wealthy and powerful and well-educated and anything else that our society might say is necessary to stand against or influence the culture in which we live. All you have to be is an ordinary person who is willing to live differently than the sinful norms of our society. To live a life of generosity, to live a life of love, to live a life of faithfulness, to live a life of kindness. Because if you look at Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, those are the words that leap off the page of their story. So what is your story? Yes, each one of us is living in a very dark time. Yes, each one of us is living in a culture where people are pretty much doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Yes, most of us are not people of tremendous natural, worldly influence. But what is your story? What is your story? Are you choosing to live a life that opposes the sinful norms of our culture? Not with anger and not with with hatred, but with love, and generosity, and kindness, and compassion. All of the things that characterized Naomi, and Ruth, and Boaz. Because here we are 3,000 years later, reading their story. Reading the story of two average Israelites and one average Moabitess were reading their story. 3,000 years from now, what will your story reflect? 3,000 years from now, what do you want to have the host of heaven be recounting about how you lived in an age like the judges, an age of darkness, an age where everyone was doing right in their own eyes? Well, as delightful and as redemptive and as, as just feeling good this story is. If you've read this week, you realize that the opening of the book of Ruth is about as discouraging as you could get. And there are some things that were going on there that for us as modern readers maybe don't quite hit us as hard as it would have hit an ancient audience. But the story starts with a famine. Now, of course, a famine is never a good thing. But how many of you recently lost sleep or were incredibly anxious because a famine might hit the US. Right. We don't really worry about a famine because even if parts of the world have a famine, there will be food on our grocery store shelves. That's one of the incredible blessings we have living in this time and in this culture. In the ancient world, If a famine hit your land, hit your country, there was a very, very real chance that you and your family were going to die. You were probably facing a genuine possibility of death. So that's how the book of Ruth begins. There's a famine in the land. And a certain man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they leave the land of promise. They leave the land that God had sworn to give to them through their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as you read the narrative accounts of the Old Testament, it is never, ever, ever, ever a good thing to leave the land of promise. Even if there's a famine in that land, it is never a good thing to leave the land of promise. So in two phrases... The threat, the danger, the risk, the anxiousness of this story, it's it's escalating. There's a famine in the land of promise. So this Israelite family chooses to leave the land of promise. So now they are not only experiencing famine, but they are experiencing it outside the land that God had promised to them through their ancestors. Well, things get worse. Because in the fields of Moab where they were sojourning, Elimelech, the father and husband and head of the household, he dies. And of course, that does hit us. Death 3,000 years ago was a very hard and sorrowful event, even as it is today. But Naomi is able to find wives for her two sons, and so she marries off her sons, Malon and Kilion, to Ruth and Orpa, and it looks like maybe the family is going to survive. But then another wave of calamity and crisis and disaster hit. Both Malon and Kilion die, and they die without any children. So at this point, It would be hard in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Israel, to paint a bleaker picture because one widow is an incredibly precarious, vulnerable, tension-filled situation. But we not only have one widow, we have three widows. And these three widows have no living descendants, and they are living outside the land of promise. It's taken us five verses to get to one of the most disturbing, unsettling, angst-inducing situations in all of the Old Testament narrative. You have three widows, two of them Moabites, living outside of the land of promise, all of them without any living descendants to carry on the family name and the family responsibility. So at the end of chapter 1, when Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which actually is a version of the Hebrew word for pleasant, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mar, as you may remember from Exodus, Mar means bitter. She actually had a lot of reason to be pretty bitter because her life had pretty much completely come apart and there was absolutely, we just, we can't emphasize this enough, there was absolutely no human way that she was going to get out of this. There just was none. There just was none. A widow herself with two widowed daughter-in-laws living in the land of Moab. You cannot get much bleaker, much more hopeless than that. And with that backstory given to us in five verses of chapter one, THE REST OF THE STORY OF RUTH UNFOLDS. BUT YOU CAN SEE HOW THE LORD WAS AT WORK. THE LORD IS ALWAYS AT WORK. AND IT STARTS WITH A RUMOR. IT STARTS WITH A RUMOR. SOJOURNING IN THE FIELDS OF MOAB. Naomi had heard a rumor, there was food in Bethlehem. The town that her husband had taken her from over 10 years ago. She heard a rumor, there's food in Bethlehem. So she, a widow, with her two daughters-in-law, two widows, start to make their way back to Bethlehem. But then Naomi realizes She is a woman who is literally living dead. She is a woman who is living dead. Full life in the ancient world, full life in the ancient world, was being biologically alive, but almost even more than that, it was living in the land of promise, having a share of the land of promise. Remember in the book of Joshua, every family got an allotted portion of the land that God had promised. So it's being biologically alive, but it's also having a piece, a chunk of the promised land that is for you and your family from previous generations to future generations. And it's having descendants. It's having someone who will carry on your family name. So in many ways, Naomi was a walking dead woman. And she realized that she was totally incapable of providing life for her daughters-in-law. That's why you have this strange conversation in chapter one where she says, look, am I able to bear you any more sons that you might marry them? Am I able, even if I was to conceive tonight, would you be willing to wait till my sons grew up to the age of marriage and married you? And, and we, we hear that conversation and we're like, that's a really bizarre conversation. But for the ancient world, that's actually what you would have expected to hear. That's absolutely what you would have expected to hear. You would have expected Naomi to say, Look, you two are from Moab. Don't enter the land of Israel and be foreigners and be aliens and be strangers in that land. Because if you do, you're putting yourself at an incredible disadvantage. Don't stick with me because I no longer have any ability to provide husbands for you, to provide descendants for you who will carry on your family name." Go back to the households of your parentage. Go back, because I have nothing I can give you. And of course we know Orpah does. And in the natural, Orpah probably made the wise choice. But what we see now is some of the character of Ruth revealing itself. And she actually understood the incredible story responsibility as a daughter-in-law that she had for her mother-in-law. And so Ruth says, no. No. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, they will bury me. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And Naomi realizes at that point, she's fighting a losing battle. And she says, okay, Ruth, you can come back. And it's interesting because, again, chapter 1, again, is a hint of hope. They make their way back to Bethlehem, and it was the beginning of the barley harvest. The beginning of a harvest season in an agricultural society was such an exciting time. Again, it's something that's lost on all of us because we're not farmers. We don't live in an agricultural society anymore. But after all the sweat and toil and labor of that first planting, after you'd gotten through the winter and waiting and waiting and waiting and wondering and hoping, will that first crop come in? Well, at the end of Ruth chapter 1, that crop was coming in. So God is saying there's hope. God is saying, I'm at work. I'm at work, and there's hope. And then in the beginning of chapter 2, I just want to read the first verse, because in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, we are introduced to Boaz. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing or a man of character, a man of valor. The phrase that's used there can go a lot of different ways, but Boaz was someone who was a man of character, whose name was Boaz. Some of you may remember that when Solomon built his temple, he named the two columns that supported the temple, and one of the names was Boaz, and the name Boaz actually means with strength. So the name of this man, Boaz, meant With strength. But more importantly to our story, Boaz was a relative of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had died, the father of Malon and Kilion. And Boaz is a relative. Now, the book of Ruth never tells us how he was a relative. Maybe he was an uncle. Maybe he was a cousin. Those are some of the categories that we would use. We don't know, but it's very, very important that we understand that Boaz was a relative. Let's jump down to chapter 2, verse 20, because we're given actually an incredible declaration of hope and praise, and Boaz is a little bit more clearly defined for us. In Ruth, chapter 2, verse 20. This is a declaration of Naomi. Remember, this is the woman who said, Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Because I went away full, and the Lord has returned me empty. This is the declaration. She says, The Lord bless him, referring to Boaz, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness To the living and the dead. This, of course, is a reference to the Lord. The Lord has not stopped. Naomi had given up hope. Naomi had given up hope. But the Lord had not stopped working. The Lord had not stopped working. Many of us have found ourselves in situations where we've given up hope. We look at the natural circumstance. And like Naomi, we say, there's no hope. There is no hope. But the Lord is still working. The Lord is still working. That's why this story is so beautiful. The Lord is still working. Even the glasses won't help that. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. You see, earlier that day, Ruth had told her mother-in-law, she said, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to follow those who are gathering the harvest, the barley harvest. The law of Moses actually stipulated that when landowners were harvesting their crops, there was two things they were not to do. They were not to harvest to the edge of their land. And they were not to go back a second or third time and gather everything that they missed. They were to leave the edges of their field And they were to leave the crop that was missed during the first harvest for the poor of the land. You know, some of us think the law of Moses is very dead and very dry and very boring. Isn't that an incredible law? Isn't that an incredible law? God said, Do not harvest your crops to the edge of the field. Do not go back a second time. It's rightfully yours. It's your land. The Lord gave it to you and your family. It's your land. But you know what? Leave that. Leave what your harvesters missed the first time so that the poor of the land will have something to eat. That's not a boring law. That's not a dry law. That's the compassionate heart of our Father. Showing just how good he is. Just how much he cares about folks. And so Ruth had absolutely every right to gather in a field that she had no ownership of. And what the author of the book of Ruth tells us is that she happened to choose the field of Boaz. Now, of course, the world would say luck, coincidence, chance. But what the author of the book of Ruth wants us to understand The hand of God was at work. The hand of God was directing her. Of all the fields, of all the landowners that were surrounding the town of Bethlehem, how was it that she happened to find herself in the field of Boaz, a close relative of her deceased father-in-law? Well, that was the Lord. That was the Lord. You see, and now Naomi is beginning to sense the hand of the Lord is at work. Maybe my situation isn't quite as hopeless as I once thought it was. And so she makes this incredible declaration of praise. Praise the Lord. He's not forgotten us. He's not lost track of us. Our situation hasn't dipped so low that we're beyond the hand of of the Lord. Because Boaz, what Ruth didn't realize, but what Naomi did realize is that Boaz was a near relative of Elimelech. But then the NIV here uses a different term. Not only does Naomi say that he was a near relative, but it says that he was a kinsman redeemer. This is the last word of Ruth 2.20. Now, your translations may have something different there. may have guardian redeemer or family redeemer. There's different ways that different English translations take that. Well, if you ever sort of compare different English translations and you see a word like that translated in different ways, what you realize is that probably there's no single English word that completely captures the word or the phrase that stands behind it. This is simply the struggle of translation. You know, sometimes when you pray, you should really thank the Lord for all of the women and men that have worked and continue to work in incredible realms of elite scholarship to give us Bibles in a language that we can read and understand, whether it's Spanish or English or whatever language you read. Because they are incredibly, incredibly anointed, gifted, scholarly individuals who many of us would describe as sort of eggheads and sort of nerds. But they love Jesus and they love his word and they're doing everything they can to give us the best translation of God's word so that we can read it and be encouraged. Anyways, that's just a total flyer. So this word that's translated kinsman-redeemer or guardian-redeemer or family-redeemer, it's a word in Hebrew you're going to learn today. Maybe some of you have heard it because when you're looking at the book of Ruth, this is a word that comes up because sometimes it's just easier to say it in Hebrew, goel. Goel. It comes from the Hebrew root ga'al, which means to redeem, which means to buy back. So remember, all of the firstborn belong to the Lord. A firstborn son belonged to the Lord. But obviously you were not going to sacrifice a firstborn son to the Lord, so you redeemed him, you bought him back, and you gave an animal sacrifice or a price of silver in its place. Every firstborn animal belonged to the Lord, but you would never sacrifice a donkey to the Lord because a donkey was an unclean animal. So you bought that donkey back and you gave the equivalent value of that donkey as a sacrifice to the Lord. The idea of redemption, redeeming, to buy back, to purchase, that's the idea of ga'al. That's the idea of a go'el. But if you look at the law of Moses... A goel, a kinsman redeemer, a near redeemer, a family redeemer, had a wide variety of tasks. So if you look at Leviticus chapter 25, one of the responsibilities of the goel, say you had become impoverished and the only way you could get yourself out of debt was to indenture yourself as a servant. That's actually something that was very common in the ancient world. If things financially were going very badly for you and you were finding yourself in debt and you had no way out, you could indenture yourself as a servant and work for someone else until your debt was paid. We saw this in the book of Exodus, for those of you who joined the Wednesday night study. Well, one of the responsibilities of the Goel was to redeem or to buy back a family member who had had to indenture themselves to pay off a debt. So say Pablo and I are cousins and things go very badly for Pablo and he has to sell himself into servitude until his debt is paid. As a goel to him, as a near relative to him, as a kinsman redeemer to him, it was my responsibility to pay off his debt to the one that he had in dentured himself to. Part of the responsibility of the go Another example, in Numbers chapter 35, if a member of your family was wrongfully killed and it wasn't manslaughter, that is, it was not unintentional on the person who committed the crime, if it was actually murder, and the judges of Israel at that time determined the one who had killed the member of your family was a murderer. Well, as the Goel of that family, it was your responsibility to execute the one who had murdered the member of your family. It was your responsibility to rightfully and justly avenge that death because it was not an accidental homicide, it was not manslaughter, it was murder. So the Goel in that case was responsible for preserving justice for that family, his family, by executing the murderer. So you can see here we really don't have a word that captures this. In fact in Numbers 35 you won't find the word redeemer or kinsman redeemer at all because there most English translators translate it as avenger or avenger of blood but the Hebrew word that stands behind that is goel. The same word that we've been looking at. So in some cases, the goel was an avenger of blood. In Numbers chapter 5, another responsibility of a goel. And again, NIV in this case translates it as close relative. If there is a debt that's owed to a member of your family who has passed away, you stand as a representative for your deceased family member. And you receive the money that was owed them in debt. So you sort of are standing in proxy on behalf of a member of your family who has died to receive the money that was owed to them that was not paid before their debt. So you can see the Goel had a wide range of responsibilities and we really don't have anything like that today. We really don't have any single title, any single individual that would be fulfilling that role for a family. And finally, going back to Leviticus 25 one more time, there was one other responsibility of a goel, which is particularly important for us to understand, to understand the book of Ruth. And that was to make sure that land did not go outside of the family. Remember, we've mentioned this before, it's so important that we understand this to rightly understand the Old Testament. When Joshua led Israel into the promised land. He divided the land. Every family had a portion of the land. Not just every tribe, every family. Of course, Levites excluded. Every family had a portion of the land. It was theirs. And it was to be theirs in perpetuity. It was to be theirs for their grandsons and great-grandsons and great-great-grandsons. It was to be theirs in perpetuity. It was never to fall outside of their family or clan. Again, we don't have time to get into it today, but the law of Moses actually made long-term homelessness an impossibility. If Israel had ever kept the law of Moses, long-term homelessness would never have existed. The law of Moses is not dead and dry. The law of Moses is an incredible declaration of how good our God is. But The responsibility of the goel, again, say you were getting yourself in financial trouble and you didn't want to indenture yourself as a servant. You could sell off temporarily a piece of your land to get some money so your family could live. It was the responsibility of the goel to purchase that land or to acquire possession of that land so that the land would remain in the family. Again, it was never to fall outside of that family line because it was such an incredibly good and gracious gift that God had given Israel. The land was a gift. The Lord said, the land is mine, but because I love you and because I have chosen you, I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the land, and I want you to honor me in this land. And I want you to respect me in this land. And if you do that, every one of your families will have a possession in the promised land indefinitely. So that was the role of the goel in Leviticus 25 as well. Well, I told you we were getting to Ruth chapter 4. We will get there now. I apologize. I apologize. This is not the way I like to preach. I'll just tell you that. I really like to get, like, a text and just preach that text. But Ruth, you just, if we were to jump into Ruth chapter 4, there's just so much background that's going to be missing. But we're not going to go much longer. I see the time. I know I've been going long. I apologize for that. But anyways, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. So at this point, you've had that incredible encounter with Ruth in the middle of the night on the threshing floor of Boaz. Just let me tell you, there is absolutely nothing sexual in that Some of the commentaries you will read were saying that Ruth was actually propositioning him. That's not at all what's going on. If we had three hours, we could go into detail. What Ruth is actually saying is, marry me. She's actually saying, marry me. Spread the edge of your garment over me. Protect me. Cover me. You know, that's the very thing that Boaz said he hoped would happen for Ruth in Ruth chapter 2. He said, may the Lord overshadow you, and protect you. Well, little did Boaz know Ruth was going to say, you're the man the Lord wants to use. Spread your garment to protect me. Take me into your house as your wife and provide for me. That's what Ruth is propositioning. Because remember, Boaz's declaration is, you are such an honorable woman. Well, would Boaz say that if she was propositioning a, a sexual encounter? Of course not. Of course not. The Hebrew there is a little tricky, but there's absolutely a way to understand that rightly where she is simply saying, Boaz, marry me. Take me into your home. Protect me. Provide for me. And Boaz says, of course, I'm going to do everything you ask of me. He was delighted because she was young. He was old. He was old. And remember, he says that. He said, praise be God that you did not go after a younger man. But you went after an old kind of grizzled guy like me. So for us old guys, there's hope. Well, a lot of us old guys are already married. But anyhow, I won't say anymore because that gets a little touchy. But but now when you look at that in Ruth chapter 3, you see it's not sexual at all it's not sexual at all. That was going on. Remember, this was the time of the judges. There were prostitutes that were approaching men on the threshing floor. Why? Because men were not sleeping in their homes during the threshing time. They were away from their wives. They were away from their families. So absolutely, there were prostitutes that were propositioning Israelite men who were sleeping on the threshing floor away from their family. But that is not even remotely what was going on with Ruth and Boaz. Not even remotely. So again, it reinforces that idea. They were choosing to go against the sinful norms of their culture. They were choosing to go against the sinful norms of their culture. Well, anyways, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. It says, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. The town gate was the court in the ancient world. The town gate obviously was the place that protected a city. It was the place that determined what went into the city, what went out of the city. The gate of a city wall was absolutely one of the most central, important places in any walled city in the ancient world. It was the place where court decisions were made, where legal matters were held. So Boaz is not resting until this matter is resolved. So he's going to the city gate because he's got to take care of the issue that Ruth has put in front of him. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned, okay, now here is another goel. There was another goel to Elimelech. Boaz was a goel. Goel, Boaz was a near relative. But there was one who was closer than him. And we don't know, you know, in our terms, whether that would be, you know, a second cousin instead of a third cousin or, you know, an uncle not through marriage as opposed to an uncle through. We don't know. But there was a goel who was closer to Elimelech than Boaz was. So, it was his right and option to redeem first. He got first pick. Imagine that you're picking, sports, picking teams for a sporting activity. This other Goel, he had first choice. He had first option. Boaz was second in line. And because Boaz was a man of honor, because he was a righteous man, he was not going to do things out of step with what the Lord had stipulated. So, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the nearer, closer kinsman redeemer, when the nearer Goel he had mentioned came along, Boaz said to him, come over here, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, the NIV there has my friend, which is a terrible translation. Because actually, the words that are used there usually mean such and such a place. So when the Bible is telling a story, it's only used a couple of times. When the Bible is telling a story, and the main point is not really the place that they're talking about. They just say such and such a place. Well, in this case, that's actually what Boaz calls this guy. He calls him Mr. So-and-so. It's not, it's not a complete insult, but it's not neutral, and it's certainly not, my friend. Because what we are going to see is that this guy, the only part that he plays in the story is to make Boaz look incredibly good. The only part Mr. So-and-so, the closer Goel, the nearer kinsman, the only function he plays in the story is to make Boaz look really good. And again, the decision that he makes, it's not wrong, it's not sinful. In fact, again, in a worldly sense, it's probably wise. When you look at the decision that the nearer Goel makes, it's not ever, ever, ever intimated that it was a sinful decision or even that it was an unwise decision but it's not as honorable, it's not as glorious as the decision that Boaz makes. And Boaz is the hero of this story. So we really don't need to know who Mr. So-and-so is. All he is, he's the one that's got to say yes or no first before Boaz can do what Ruth has asked him to do. So it says, Boaz took ten of the elders, because you would have needed ten to have an official court decision. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said sit here and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi who has come back from Moab is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Well again she's probably not really selling it. She as a widow with a widow daughter-in-law would have no way of supporting this land, would have no way of using this land. By family right it was to stay in her family, but she needed to give someone else the right to farm it. That's pretty much what's happening here, but it's not quite selling the way we would think of it. And remember, she's been away for over 10 years, so more than likely someone else has started to squat on it. Ruth never tells us that, but that's probably what was going on because it would be hard to believe that a chunk of, of, of farmland outside the town of Bethlehem would just be lying fallow for 10 years. So there was probably someone else that was farming it at this point. But anyways, what Boaz is saying is, The obligation of the goel in this point, in line with Leviticus 25, is to redeem this land, is to make sure this land stays in the family. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it back or that you acquire it, is a better understanding there, um, in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So Boaz is basically saying, you're the nearer Goel. It's your right to acquire this, to keep it in the family and the line of Elimelech. Do it if you choose to do so. And of course, at this point, as the reader, you're saying, say no, say no, say no. But... In fact, he says, I will redeem it. And at this point, as the reader your heart is sinking, you're like, no, this is not the guy we want. (laughs) Then Boaz said, and look at how smart Boaz was. You notice how he kind of left the whole Ruth issue out of the first proposition? Not only was he honorable and generous and loving and compassionate, he was pretty sharp tack. Then Boaz said, on the day you acquire or redeem the land from Naomi, uh, and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with its property. Again, probably not the best way to take it. Probably what he actually says is the day that you acquire the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite,s to raise up descendants in the name of Elimelech. Now, again, we're just going to have to pause here. I apologize, I know I'm going really long. But something else is being incorporated in here that was not the responsibility of the goel. Something else is being incorporated in here. And the, the, sharpest, the sharpest of evangelical scholars still don't completely understand the business transaction that was taking place at the gates of Bethlehem some 3,000 years ago. But what seems to be going on here is a second aspect of the law of Moses sometimes referred to as the law of leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy 25, what the law of Moses stipulates that if a man who is married dies and he has left his widow no children, it is the obligation of his unmarried brother to take the widow as a wife and to give her children, but the children, the firstborn son, will not take the name of the father, but will take on the name and the inheritance rights of the deceased brother. Very strange law for us. This is what was going on in Genesis 38. Remember, Tamar had married one of Judah's sons and he was evil in the Lord's eyes and so the Lord killed him. And then Judah, understanding this law, even before the Lord gave it to Moses, offers Tamar, uh, I think it's Er's the first guy, Onan's the second, and Onan refuses to do it because he understands that my inheritance is going to be compromised because this first son that's going to be born to me will not actually really be mine. He will actually be my deceased brother's. This was called, again, the law of leveret marriage. The word levir in Latin means brother-in-law. So it was the idea that An unmarried brother whose brother passed away having married a woman and giving no children. It was his responsibility to raise up sons, descendants, in the name of his deceased brother. His name in Hebrew is Yavam. It's not Goel. It was never the responsibility of the Goel to do this. So that's what makes this really kind of interesting. Because it doesn't just perfectly line up with the law of Moses. But it reminds us the law was always to be interpreted and rightly understood and there were always going to be extenuating circumstances. So Boaz is throwing the nearer Goel a real zinger here and he says look when you redeem the land yeah your, your property is going to increase and you are going to do the job of the Goel and you are going to keep this land in the name and the family of Elimelech but it is now also going to be your responsibility to raise up sons for Elimelech and for Malon. That's basically what Boaz is asking of him. And at that point, the nearer Goel says, I can't do that. I can't do that. And all he says is, lest I ruin or spoil my own inheritance. Now, we're not given any details how raising up children with Ruth in the name of Malon Elimelech would have spoiled his inheritance a couple of possibilities as soon as you marry Ruth you would have been responsible for Naomi you would have been responsible for all the children that were born to you through Ruth so maybe he didn't have the financial means to extend his household that way that's a very real possibility possibly he had no sons himself in that case if he bears Ruth a son and Ruth only has one son with him all of his inheritance will now pass to the family line of Elimelech and not to his specific family line, which had been part of the, the larger clan. That's also a possibility. It's also possible that Ruth was a Moabitess. And Deuteronomy 23 clearly said up to 10 generations. No one from Moab, no one from Ammon, can approach the temple of the Lord. There certainly would have been a little bit of a stigma in ancient Israel marrying a Moabitess. And so whatever the reason is, the nearer Goel says, I cannot do it. And of course, now as a reader, you're like, yes, yes. And so Boaz says, you've all heard it. The nearer Goel has refused. It's now mine as second in line to take on this privilege and responsibility, and I will do it. I will not only redeem the land of Elimelech, I will not only take Naomi into my house and care for her, but I will take Ruth into my house as my wife, and I will raise up sons through her for her deceased husband, Malon, and deceased father-in-law, Elimelech. Boaz is going above and beyond the expectation of the Goel. He could have done just the minimum, but he said no. I'm going to be extravagant. I'm going to be extravagantly generous. I'm going to be extravagantly compassionate. I'm going to be extravagantly kind. I'm not only going to take on the role of the goel, I'm going to take on the role of the yavam. I'm going to do what is more than simply the minimum that is expected of me. What a story. And look at the book of Ruth. It ends with a genealogy. And many of us are so excited, it's a short genealogy. Because some of those long genealogies, whoa, those are tough to get through. This only has a few names in it. I can get through it. And I'm so happy because I just read Ruth. I can read a few names. But look at what happens. The names of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon are not forgotten. Here we are 3,000 years later talking about these three men who died. The Lord honored the commitment of Boaz. But look even more closely. The son that is born to Boaz and Ruth, Obed, he's actually counted as Boaz's son. God honored both. The names of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon are not forgotten. And yet Obed is considered the son of Boaz, who ultimately is the grandfather of David Who is ultimately the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Three ordinary people living in an incredibly dark and sinful time. Choosing to live differently. Choosing faithfulness. Choosing compassion. Choosing generosity. Choosing love. What a story. In conclusion, we can't end without mentioning Jesus because, as with all the stories of the Old Testament, this is a story about Jesus. We oftentimes think of Jesus as a king, and rightly so. We oftentimes think of Jesus as a priest, and rightly so. We oftentimes think of Jesus as the Word of God, the perfect prophet, and rightly so. But Jesus is our near relative. Jesus is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews put Psalm 22 on the lips of Jesus, and Jesus declares to the Father, I will declare your name in the company of my brothers. We are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Christ is our near relative. And many of us, when we look at our past, our past is Moabite." Our past is shameful. Our past is disgraceful. Our past is embarrassing. Our Redeemer doesn't care. Our Redeemer doesn't care. Boaz looked at Ruth and said, I don't care if you're a Moabitess or not. You are a woman that I will marry. Jesus, the perfect Redeemer, looks at our past, and it doesn't intimidate him, and it doesn't frustrate him, and it doesn't make him incapable of redeeming. You know that Nira Goel, he said, the cost of redemption is too much. I can't do it. It costs me too much to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth. Jesus looks at us and says, redeeming you will cost me everything, but I will do it. Redeeming you will cost me everything but I will do it and he did and finally the redemption of Boaz was extravagant he didn't just redeem the land he married Ruth and brought into his household Naomi and Ruth Jesus doesn't just Do the minimum. He doesn't just save us. He doesn't just get us in by the skin of our teeth. Jesus calls us co-heirs with Christ. The Father now loves us the same as he loves Jesus, as we were talking about Thursday. The inheritance we have, the blessings that we have, the status that we have in the kingdom, Jesus doesn't just save us and redeem us by the minimum. Jesus literally gives us everything that he has and says, this is yours as well. This is our kinsman redeemer. This is our close relative. This is our older brother, Jesus, all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the incredible, incredible opportunity to read the book of Ruth together, to look at it together today We thank you just for the way that you stirred in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to make such incredibly God-honoring choices in a time where few were living that way. And we look, Lord God, at the incredible blessing you poured upon all three of them because of the simple and yet powerful choices that they were willing to make. And Lord, help us each day, help us each day to live differently, not to do what is right in our own eyes, but to do what is right in your eyes. To live generously, compassionately, kindly, and with love. And most of all, Father, we thank you for Jesus, the perfect kinsman redeemer, who is able to redeem no matter what our past, who is willing to sacrifice everything, to redeem us, and who redeems us extravagantly. Jesus, we choose to worship you now, and we will spend all eternity worshiping you as well. And it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.